to sort of set the scene for you for this day. Um, a day in the outskirts of Jerusalem. You remember, of course, that he had retreated out of Jerusalem because he knew that people were trying to entrap him and perhaps kill him. But then he got word from his very dear friends, Mary and Martha, that their brother, whom Jesus loved, was dying and was ill. And Jesus, um, risking his own life, returns back to Bethany, which is very near Jerusalem. And he heals Lazarus and calls him forth from his grave. And of course, that set the whole region on edge. And the authorities in the temple were concerned and began to plot against Jesus, but also against Lazarus. And then, interestingly, Jesus decides to go into Jerusalem. Now, I want to I want you to know that Jesus bringing Lazarus forth and coming into the town of Bethany was what we call agape love, sacrificial love. He was risking his own life to care for those he loved. But now he goes into Jerusalem and he risks his life for the people of God, the children of God. It includes you and me. Truly an agape act of love, a sacrificial act of love. Now, I want to dispel you of the sense that the palm procession that entered Jerusalem was some kind of children's parade. It was not. Even uh, though the, the song we just sang, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna, said the, ch the little children sang, I have no doubt that there were children present, but, but I want to help us remember that the scripture points us to the fact that this was not a children's parade. This was a protest march. That on the other side of the city, the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, was arriving from his summer home in order to sort of ride herd on all the goings-on in Jerusalem for the Passover. You see, Jews from all over the region would be flocking in to Jerusalem for the Passover. And that is why Jesus is headed there as well. But Jesus has another agenda, if you will. Jesus is headed into Jerusalem to confront the powers and principalities of his day. He is holding a counter-protest march to show that there are rulers who think they have all the power, and there are people who understand that there is but one ruler of the cosmos. Well, the reason scholars, biblical scholars and biblical history scholars, believe that this is a counter-protest is because Jesus does this interesting thing. He tells the disciples as they get near Gethsemane, right outside the walls of Jerusalem, as they get near Gethsemane, to go into the city, and there they will find a person who has a donkey and a colt. And if they get questioned, just say, the rabbi needs it. Um, which leads scholars to believe 
believe that this is planned. This isn't just happenstance. That Jesus has planned for this, this arrival in Jerusalem. And as we go on into the Gospel of Matthew, you will see this is exactly what is going on here. Now, I also want to say that there's this interesting reference to the donkey and the colt, the foal of a donkey. And that if you look at the language in the scripture, it's all plural, that um, the disciples go and retrieve them and bring them to Jesus. And then they put cloaks on them and put Jesus on top of them. Now, I don't know about you, but one person riding a donkey and a colt seems to me a little bit difficult to achieve, which might be the real miracle happening in this story, right? Uh, but actually, it is the writer of the Gospel of Matthew attempt to reconcile what he is doing throughout the whole of his Gospel. The Gospel that uses um, the Hebrew Scriptures to seek to verify that this is indeed the Messiah on whom the Jewish people had waited and had prayed for. And so, um, the the scripture that's quoted there is from the prophet Zechariah, who, who writes this, or speaks this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. And so... Matthew holds these two stories in parallel, so any Jewish follower of Jesus would recognize immediately that this Jesus of Nazareth, this rabbi of Nazareth, is standing smack dab in the, rain, in the chain of great prophets of Israel. And this is consistent with what Matthew does throughout the whole of the Gospels. Now, then it says that people put their cloaks on the donkey and, and, and cut branches, and, and we assume, as I said in the children's message, they're palm branches because of the Mediterranean climate. Uh, and they're doing this in their efforts to honor Jesus. Now, you know, we do this. We have red carpets, and we have processionals in, into places, and uh, but we don't generally throw our cloaks and palm branches, but this is a way of making a red carpet for Jesus and bringing Jesus into the city. And they proclaim as they go, waving the branches of the trees, blessed is the heir of David, indicates that there's still a misconception among Jesus' disciples and followers of how they are going to be saved. They say, blessed is the heir of David. And, and what that indicates is they still believe that this Jesus, who they believe now is the chosen one, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, is going to rise up and take over and restore the kingdom of Israel as a king would do, as the king who, the greatest king of Israel, David, did. Of course, we don't have confusion about that Jesus was not intent upon restoring the kingdom of Israel. But we, we talk about that Jesus, when it says uh, how they will be saved, um, we tend to make that an eternal salvation, right? And, and that's part of Jesus' uh, work. 
in righting the injustices, in confronting the powers and principalities, in calling forth the light of God to shine on what is wrong right here and right now. This is Jesus' intent. The salvation is about now. And that's for us too, even though we also see a salvation that is eternal. Well, I, I actually today want to talk about what I think is really on Jesus' heart at this point in the story. I think Jesus, um, so I think Jesus has actually come face to face with his death. I think it happened at the tomb of Lazarus. But I think it happened before that because there's all kind of time Jesus tries to talk to the disciples about his suffering and that he will suffer and die and be resurrected. And they, they hear the suffering and dying, but they don't hear the resurrection. And so I think it's in Jesus' heart that he has retained this intimate relationship with God. And, and so Jesus has this heart knowledge that really life and death are the same thing. And so he's free. He's free to go into Jerusalem and to make a difference in the lives of those he is seeking to bring justice to. He is not afraid to go into Jerusalem and do the things that he will do that will bring about uh, transformation. And that's what he does. I mean, if you follow the Gospel of Matthew from this triumphant ride in, into, um, into Jerusalem, I mean, he gets off the donkey and like, walks right into the temple and overturns the tables and confronts the money changers. And, and, and scholars believe that's a street theater going on there. That Jesus is drawing attention to a justice, an injustice that he wants to right. He's all about shining a light on all the injustices of the Roman Empire and all the injustices of the temple authorities who have, in his estimation, distorted the true worship of God. And then, you know, they leave Jerusalem and he stands looking out over Jerusalem from a couple of miles away and weeps over Jerusalem. But the next day, you'll find him back in the temple. He's teaching, and he's teaching the hard lessons of faith. You know, he's teaching the story about the wicked tenants, you know, the ones who, uh, you know, want to keep the vineyard for themselves. And so when the owner comes, sends somebody to collect the money, they run them off and beat them up. And then it keeps on and keeps on until finally the owner sends the son they kill the son. No, I mean, Jesus is holding the mirror up to the temple authorities and to the Roman Empire. And, and, and Jesus teaches the hard parable of what is called the judgment of the nations. And, and there are sheep and there are goats. And those who cared for the outcast and the poor are those who will enter the realm of God. 
I mean, the temple authorities can't avoid this. And so they begin to question his authority, and, and they ask questions about, uh, you know, uh, about giving, about the coins, and they, you know, and, and so Jesus has answers for all this, because they just can't trap him. And, and then he calls them out. He calls out the scribes and the Pharisees for not being faithful in their service to God, for distorting the worship of God. Calls them right out. So he is unafraid, unafraid to shine light into the world. This is the Jesus who rode triumphantly in. Of course, they will leave again and go out uh, to Gethsemane. And they will have a meal where a woman will come and anoint him with oil and see him as the redeemer that he really is. And, and then uh, they will go to Gethsemane where he will pray. And... Um, and they will have a meal to get that meal together where their final meal as disciples and teacher who in which he will make a new covenant for them while the betrayer is doing the dirty work and then they go out to Gethsemane and he prays and and Judas comes and he is betrayed and they take him away and yet he doesn't do what most great leaders would do. He doesn't call the army. Um, he doesn't wreak violence. He doesn't create a fight and have violence. He has a conversation with the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, and then goes to the cross and uses words like love and forgiveness and talks to God. And why wouldn't we expect that? It's a startling story, but what I want to lift up for you is that it's because of Jesus' deep relationship with God, Jesus' deep conversation with God, Jesus' knowledge and ability to confront his own death that he is set free. You know, we're living in desperate times right now. It's supposed to get really bad this next week with people dying from this pandemic and people getting very sick. And it's not just here, it's all around the world. And, you know, we're in a dire economic situation. And we can focus on those things and, and be deeply afraid. And we can be so afraid that we will, we will treat those we love and those who are our neighbors badly. I mean, but I don't think it's lost on you that there's a lot of good going on right now. There are a lot of people reaching out to others. There are a lot of people, I saw a little kid on the news this morning that was going around putting notes in his neighbor's um, mailboxes saying, if you need anything, call me. He's like kindergarten. Um, I think you could name a dozen or more ways in which people are showing that they're looking at death and realizing that this life is fleeting at best. And so instead of throwing it away in fear, throwing it away in judgment and hate, 
that are turning to loving. And in many cases, as with the medical personnel, and, and by the way, the um, coroners and others are giving sacrificially. They're showing us what Jesus' love looks like in human form. And it's an amazing thing. You know, I'm a big fan of Richard Rohr, Father Richard Rohr, and I've been following his um, daily devotional, and, and I just have to tell you that I want to share with you, I have to share with you, uh, some of his words. Um, you know, um, there's a Hindu saying that says, the surprise of surprises is that although everybody who has ever lived in this world has died, for some reason, we think we won't. Now, isn't that interesting? And such a truth. This is how we most often live, isn't it? And I think what is important to note is that Jesus had already faced his death, and so he didn't live that way. He had already taught about what it was to die. He had also taught about what it means that death is not the end, but a beginning. And this allowed him to step boldly into the temple and to confront the powers and principalities, the Roman authorities, as well as the temple authorities. So Jesus does his work of justice and shines that light on things that are operating in the shadows. So, do you see? This is our chance. We have a chance right now to do that very thing. We have a chance, and we have downtime in which we can, if we will, deeply connect with our Creator who is revealed to us in Jesus. We can deeply connect with the Holy Spirit who wants to comfort us, who wants to nudge us toward wholeness, and, and who wants us to be the people God created us to be. We have a chance to decide what will rule in our world. Powers and principalities are the one who actually rules the cosmos. But most of us see death as the enemy and do everything we can to avoid it. And it's not that we shouldn't be safe. And it's not that we shouldn't practice healthy things and distancing and all the things that will keep us safe. But we tend to treat it like an enemy. And it seems that we are not ready to die until we have truly lived. And what Richard Rohr tells us is that we have to confront our death and dying if we truly want to live. He says that Jesus participated in the initiation rite of baptism with his cousin John the Baptist because it was a symbol of his death and dying and coming into new life. And we have done the same. And then he told his disciples repeatedly that he was going to die, and they couldn't catch it. They couldn't get it. And so he did it instead of talking about it. And Richard Rohr tells us that once, faced pain, once we face pain and death, they no longer have power over us. And, and they may, in fact, be an entrance into new life. Eckhart says, you do not need to be a Christian to understand the deep universal truth that is contained in symbolic, in symbolic form in the image of the cross. 
So I want to tell you, I had a conversation with some friends of mine last night, and uh, we were talking pretty frankly about death. And it caused me to think about my dad, whom I call Papa Hutt. And here's what I think. I think there's a reason why we called that generation the greatest generation. And I don't think it's just because they won World War II. I actually think that the people who were at the front lines of the worst fighting, both in the European and in the Pacific theater, had to see death every day and face their own deaths every day. So when victory in Europe and victory in the Pacific, in Japan, came about, no wonder people celebrated as they did. But I have to tell you that when I look back on my dad's life and the friends that I was talking to said on their dad's life who were in uh, World War II, it somehow made them more gracious, more whimsical, more generous. It freed them. The fact that they had seen death and faced their own death freed them and brought them to new places of being. And frankly, my dad was never really afraid of death. He didn't want to die and didn't do anything, didn't try to do things that would bring on his death. But I do remember having a conversation with him when he was in, in his 90s. And, and, I, and we had sold his house, and he wanted to split that up between his, the three daughters. And I said, Papa, you can't do that. You might live to be 100. And he couldn't wrap his mind around it. He just couldn't wrap his mind around living to be 100, and nor did he want to. He didn't rush to his death. It's not something he tried to avoid. Friends, on this Palm Sunday, we have a chance to look a little bit more like Jesus, to see and look and enter into a deepening relationship with our God, who is revealed to us in Jesus, and who is with us as the Holy Spirit. We have a chance to see resurrection happening in our world today in many ways that people are bringing about new life and even to see resurrection for all of us as we enter into the eternal kingdom of God. Because you see, with God, nothing is impossible. And so we can hold the palms today that will then become